We just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and study and see your word. We ask you to bless and keep us, help us to see what you would have us to see from this section. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we have made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of, of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when, it came, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is me, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. And we have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto the light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn. And the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All right, so we're going to look at this. We've talked many times that there is nothing new under the sun. And this very first part that we're looking at in verse 16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables. In our day and age right now, they want to tell us that the Bible is full of very smart, cunning fables and stories and lies. And here we have Peter in the first century, not even more than 30 years from Jesus' death, telling us, well, maybe 40 years, but no more than 40 years after Jesus' death, telling us that the accusations were, you're being taught fables and stories. And this is something that we as Christians need to make sure we understand. And I say this over and over. The word of God is true. Whether I believe it or not, it's true. Whether the people I talk to believe it or not, it's true. Whether the smart, intelligent people with lots of letters after their names <laughs> believe it or not, it's true. It doesn't matter what smart people believe it. It's still true. <laughs> and here is Peter saying... We have not invented stories for you to follow. He's saying, we're really not that smart. We haven't created these fables for you to, to follow as we're being accused of. Because remember, what was the very thing that happened when Jesus was resurrected? The very first attack of the resurrection was when the scribes and Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, paid off the guards and said... Tell everybody that while, while you slept, the disciples stole the body. And if you're, we're going to pay you to tell this lie. And if it comes out that your bosses get mad, you will pay them off as well. And we'll pay off as many people as needed to try to dis, disprove this resurrection. Because we know he said he was going to resurrect, and now he resurrected. So now we've got to create a lie out there to keep it from becoming known. You know, and I've always loved that lie, you know, while we slept, somebody did something. I have never met anybody who tell me exactly what happened when they slept. When I go to sleep, I, I go to sleep, I wake up at some time, and I have no idea what happened between the time I fell asleep and the time I woke up. And usually don't know what's happening when I first wake up. Because I'm disoriented and trying to figure out what's going on. Now, I get my orientation fairly quick most mornings. But, you know... I could never go in and say, while I was sleeping, somebody did something. I might notice that my house has been robbed, but I would not be able to say, so-and-so came into my house and robbed my house while I was sleeping, unless I have a camera somewhere on my house watching this. So I've always loved that story. It was so easy to rip apart that I can't believe they ever believed, you know, you know I, they would have been better off saying somebody stole the body while we were sleeping, and, that, and still there would have been, why were you sleeping on duty issues. Uh, it's still deadly. That, you know, if, you're, if you're in the military, it is still, you can still be executed for sleeping on post. Normally, they just discharge you with a dishonorable discharge. In times of war, they'll actually execute you because you put too many lives in danger by sleeping on post. And it was true in their day as well. You did not sleep on post. Yeah, well, you didn't sleep at all. When you, you were on for, on for four, you were off for four, and... Even during that four that you were off, you were still on duty, but you were, so you were, in that case, it was sleep with one eye open, ready to move, while the other half of the squad watched what was going on. 
So, but he's saying all these things. People are making you know, all these stories. Paul, we know everywhere Paul went, he preached the gospel of grace. People came to Christ, had their lives changed, and the Judaizers would come along and say, well, Paul's story was really good, but he didn't give you the whole story. You've really got to follow these laws. If you want to be a good follower of God, you want to be the follower of God who's accepted, you've got to do all these list of things that they would come in and being good Jews, it would be 613 laws that you have to obey. Okay, to be a follower of God. Now most people can't follow one law completely. Trying to follow 613 laws that you didn't grow up knowing would be a really tough thing and even when they grew up knowing them, they didn't follow them. You know, so here we see Peter making his defense. He goes, I know that you guys are being told that you're following fables, that we're telling you lies, is what he's telling, saying. You know, we, you're being told that we have, are giving you these cunningly devised fables. And this is such a wonderful idea. You know, it was not new. It is not, not a, it's not new now. It wasn't new then. It's been going back as far as God speaking to people. Because what was Satan's attack on God? Did God really say... You know, going to Eve, you know, you know, and, and going to Eve is, is a strategic move on his part because Eve did not get the direct command from God. She got her command from Adam. When God said, this is the tree, don't eat it, she got her information from Adam. When she said, and this has always been interesting to me, she said, we can't even touch the tree, you know, which is not what God said, but, you know, in religion, we like to add expanses beyond whatever God says. And that's what the Pharisees always did. And the Jews are well known for this. They add what they call fences around the law, which are more strict than the law, so that if you violate the fence, you might not violate the law. So Adam tells Eve, you know, well, we're not to eat of this tree. And by the way, God says, don't touch it. And he never said that. But even when Eve gave that statement, does anybody remember what she said? God said, you will die the day you eat of that tree. Eve said, lest we die. Lest we die. So she wasn't even saying we will die. You know, and this is a sad thing. She was already confused in her mind what God's very direct will and, and law speaks. Which is why it's important for us to get into God's word <laughs> Know what we believe, know why we believe, and know that it matches Scripture. Because everybody has areas, everybody has areas in their life that aren't completely scriptural. All of us do. Even people like myself who've studied for all these years and decades have certain areas where every once in a while I'll go in and go, oh, hold it, that doesn't match what I thought you said somewhere else, and I have to really wrestle at that point with what I believe. And it's important for us to do this wrestling with what do we believe. And we want to be very careful with this because it is easy. It is easy to take something that we heard a pastor say or think we heard a pastor say or heard on the radio or heard somebody teach when we were growing up and say, this is true. And then we get into God's word and go on, hold it. I believed this for 60 years, you know, all my life I believed this, but the Bible doesn't say that. You know, and some of the things we like to say is people will tell you the love of uh, money is the root of all evil. Well, that's not what the scriptures say. Money is inadequate. It has no good or bad into it at all. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Because for the desire for me for getting money, if I'm really trying to get money, I may do all kinds of bad things to get money. But I can use money for lots of good things. And there have been lots of Christians who have used their money for good things. They give away and give away and give away. They give away most of what they make to serve God. They're using money for good reasons and good things. Money is inanimate. It has no good or bad. Especially in America, we have this idea of cleanliness is next to godliness. Now, cleanliness is good, keeps you healthy, <laughs> keeps, you, keeps you living a little longer, but it has nothing to do with godliness, and that is not even close to anything in the Bible. And yet, we'll hear, you know, especially in the old days, you know, in the 1700s, the good book says, 
Well, no, it doesn't say anything about that. So we need to be careful what we believe. You know, I've heard Sunday school teachers in kids' departments tell you, well, God doesn't like you when you sin. Well, um, in one sense, I understand what they're trying to say. God does not like it when we sin, but he still loves them. And he still cares for them. And I've seen kids that are afraid to go to God because they know they're a sinner. And their Sunday school teacher says, God doesn't like you. And they know it, and that stings very deeply to their heart. And I come unglued when I hear a Sunday school teacher say that to kids. I would come unglued if I heard an adult say that to somebody else. But at least an adult can reason it through, maybe. But how many people are afraid to come to God because they've heard that God, maybe they even hear the right statement, God hates sin. And they know that they're big sinners, so they interpret that, that God hates them. You know, and it's true that God hates sin. But God loves the sinner. The problem is the world can't separate the sin and the sinner very, very well. As a matter of fact, they don't separate them at all. Even we as Christians have trouble separating this, the person from what they do. Because in the world, if you steal, you are a thief, and you are a thief because you steal, and they mix the two together, and there is no difference between the two where God says, person, you have a problem. You're a sinner. And your particular brand of sin that you're having a problem with is stealing. And we can separate the two. That's why when we come to Christ and we become a new creation, it's easy for God. He just changes the person. Takes away their desire for that sin, and that sin fades away when they make him Lord and Master. But this is what he's saying. And Peter goes on to say, we have made known to you, uh, when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. This is the good news that we follow. The people who wrote the Bible were eyewitnesses to what happened. Paul in 1 Corinthians was challenging the people. If you don't believe what I'm telling you, I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. I saw a bright shining light that blinded me. I heard him speak. I met Jesus. And he goes, if you don't believe that I met a resurrected Jesus, Go to Jerusalem. There are 500 people there that are eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, if you were going to court and you had 500 eyewitnesses all saying the same, you know, what event happened, you probably would win the case hands down. And yet, people will say all those 500 people were delusional. They all had the same delusion. Not likely. <laughs> Not likely at all. For that to happen. And here's Peter using that same defense. Eyewitnesses. I'm an eyewitnesses. The other 12 are eyewitnesses. There were hundreds of other people that walked with God, with Jesus during that period of time. They're eyewitnesses. Go talk to any of them. They were claiming they were all liars, thieves, and sinners. That you can't believe their testimony because they're all uh, evil people. You can't believe them. They're all sinners. And the other thing they were using is they're all they're all ignorant. They don't, they're easily, easily fooled. And, but this is the same attacks that are made today. You Christians are just so foolish and ignorant. You, if you just had a little bit of education, you would know that what you believe isn't, isn't valid. Don't fall for those kind of things because they're not legitimate. Very many educated people believe in the Bible. Why? Because they know who they are in Christ. <laughs> and they know that the Bible fits the facts better than all the other craziness out there. We talk about evolution and creationism. Number one, neither one of them are science. Don't ever buy into the, the idea that evolution is based on science. It's not. It's based on philosophy. And the base part of their philosophy is there is no God. And if there is no God, we have to come up with some crazy idea how everything started. We start with the philosophy, there is a God, and he tells us how we started it, which happens to match very well to what science says, whereas evolution does not match scientific facts. So we can say, here, here is the science that supports us. Neither one of them are scientific. We cannot test something by going back to a time when nothing exists. Make sure you hear that. You know, how do you test something that started with nothing when we're starting with something? There's a very old joke where the scientists tell God, you know, God, we don't need you to explain how life starts and how, you know, how things go. And we, could, we can create life. 
And God says, okay, I accept your challenge. Go ahead and start. And they start gathering up the dirt and everything. God says, oh, no, no, make your own dirt. That's my dirt. <laughs> you, know, you didn't start, you're starting with my stuff. You know, go, you know, go all the way back and start with nothing. We need to be able to, we cannot test a theory for anything that starts with nothing. Because any test we do starts with something. And you know, we might be able to create some chamber with nothing in it and then watch nothing happen. You know, we, we can do that real well. We can create a vacuum. OK, let's see if anything happens to this vacuum. We'll, we'll set up the experiment. We'll watch it for, for hundreds and thousands and millions of years, and nothing will ever happen in that vacuum. So we need to be aware that he's saying, we are eyewitnesses. And I've said this for us. When we get saved, we have a testimony of what God has done for us. My testimony I've shared with, the, with you so often, I got saved when I was 10 years old, and God immediately took away a temper from me, gave me a peace and that I have had ever since. I know that I know that there's a God who changed me and made me a new creation. Nobody can come about and say, well, yeah, just suggestions. You, know, you just think you have peace. You just think you lost your temper. You just think that this, there's a person called God out there. No, I know. I know that there's a God that I speak with and I pray to and I depend on. Every one of us should have a testimony that we can say, God, this is where you changed me. I know that you are God. And when you have that testimony, it gives you confidence because you can go to people and say, God is real. And they may think you're delusional. They may think that you don't know what you're talking about. And that's fine. It doesn't matter what they think. We need to get to that point. It does not matter what people think. And this is what Peter is saying here. People are telling you that we're, we're mixing up truths and stories and fables for you. But we are eyewitnesses. And he gives, we have the accounts of eyewitnesses in the Bible. Verse 17, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came a voice to him from, from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This statement was made in two places in the Bible. First one was in Matthew 3, 17, after the baptism. John baptized him and said, and the Holy Spirit came down as a dove and landed on Jesus and said, and the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter wasn't there at that time. This is not the, that's not the one he's talking about. He, Peter is talking about in Matthew 17, 5, on the Mount of Transfiguration where you have Jesus, Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration and a bright light shines around them, and a voice from heaven out of that glory says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one that Peter's talking about. Peter remembers that day very well, because I love what it says in, in Mark. Uh, Peter, because he didn't know what else to say, <laughs> said, shall we make booze for you, Moses, and uh, Elijah? because they came down and, and met Jesus on the hill. The law and the prophets met Jesus on the mountain. And you know, Peter had a big problem with foot and mouth disease. Whenever he didn't know what to say, he said something stupid or did something stupid, like many of us. <laughs> Peter, it's a good thing that Peter's in the Bible because we look at what God used him for and we look at how he always had this penchant for saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. It gives us a lot of hope that God can use us. <laughs> but here he says, he received from God the honor. I love this idea of honor, splendor. Honor in the Old Testament has the idea of piling on weight, the praise, you know, saying good things about it. God the Father honored. He put splendor. He said, he said pleasant things. And glory, again, the splendor, excuse me, honor, oh, honor to place a value on something. You know, how many people have something they honor that is very valuable, maybe just to them? A family heirloom, it's probably worth nothing in reality, but to that person, it's worth 
it's priceless. It can't be replaced because it belonged to, to mom and grandma and great-grandma and great-great-grandma or however far you want to go, but it's something that has great value to them. Uh, I grew up moving around all my life. I have nothing really of, of super high great value to, to me. There's no China anywhere or pictures or anything that really have great value to me, but I know there are things like that to a lot of people, that it has honor and glory. God placed honor. He put a high price on Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Our ultimate goal as Christians is to hear similar words. Enter into, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom. I'm looking forward. I want to hear well done. I don't want to hear just the last part. Enter into the kingdom. You got in here just by my grace. <laughs> Better than the alternative. But I really do want to hear well done. You've served me well. That takes time. That takes effort. That takes making him Lord, opening our mouth once in a while and telling others about him, sharing him, living a life that people look at and say, that's what a Christian's supposed to be like. You know, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The Mount of Transfiguration, at right at, just before the crucifixion, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Same testimony from beginning to end. I am looking forward to hearing those words. And I hope everybody is working on hearing those words to say, I want to hear, well done. And this is what he says, that voice came from heaven, which we heard when we were with him on the holy mount. And Peter's saying, I heard those words. I'm not just repeating those words to you that I heard somebody else say that happened. I was there. And this is something that we really do want to understand. What is our testimony before the world? I was there. I know that God did this. I know that God said something. I know that God has led me. There are times when I know God has done things in my life, and there's nobody who's going to tell me, no, he didn't. One of them was coming out to Kingman. You know, I fought hard against God for about three months, telling God, I don't want to go to Kingman. I don't, I don't, there's no work in Kingman, God. I'm a computer programmer. I don't even think they have computers in Kingman. I didn't go quite that bad, but it was like, there, there's no computer work in Kingman, God. What, what am I going to do for work? Yeah. And I knew where he wanted me to go. I didn't argue real long with him, but, you know, it's like, God, you know, I'm used to making money as a programmer. How can I make money out in Kingman? Uh, I have to go back to restaurants or something, and that's, that's a third of the money that I'm used to making, God. It's not, is this really what you want me to do? And he put me out here anyway. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened for me because God is blessed in so many ways. What has God done for you? What has he spoken with you? How do you know that he exists as an eyewitness? Well, it's wonderful to know his word. We need to know his word because his word is true. And we want to know his word because but his word is somebody else's testimony. And we've never met Peter. He died a few millennia ago. We've never met Peter. We've never met John. We've never met Mark. We've never met Paul. Uh, we want to go even further back. We have definitely never met Moses or Abraham or any of those guys that are in the word or Jonah or Joel or Amos. We have their testimony. That alone is, should be enough for us. But the good news is God doesn't let that be our only testimony. He says, you're a new creation. I work directly with you. Think about this a lot. What is your testimony? What is it about God that you know that you know that you know? Now, your testimony has to match up with God, with God's word. My testimony, I got saved. He made me a new creation. He took away a couple of my big sins. He's given me peace, and he has blessed me ever since. Does that mean I've had nothing bad happen in my life? No, I've had bad things happen in my life. I've had ups and downs, but God is still blessed, and he's been there through everything. Our testimony should be, this is what God has done for me. And I really am serious about this. If you can't remember what God has done, take time and ask him to remind you and put it down in a book somewhere. So that when Satan attacks and, you say, and says to you, well, God doesn't love you, he doesn't do anything for you, you can take this out and say, yeah, now, Satan, you're a liar. 
he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. And boy, you start counting what God has done for you and you're going to be excited about what he's done for you. Put those markers in your life. Think about them. Know, because if you're really God's child, there is a personal testimony in you on how God is matched up. If it doesn't match the scriptures, think twice about it. If I hear somebody say, well, I got saved and I've never had a problem since, I'm going to call him a liar. <laughs> because they're probably, number one, not saved if that's a true statement. Because God said, the world hated me, it, they will hate you. Satan really hates you when you're a follower of Christ because he's lost you. He can't take you to hell with, with them. He can't hurt God by taking you to hell. He is going to fight tooth and nail against any Christian who's doing anything. And the Bible tells us we're going to suffer persecution. We're going to suffer trials. And it also tells us God's hand is going to be holding us when we do. So if you're going to tell me that, you're, that your testimony is outside of what Scripture says, I'm going to say, I don't believe your testimony. Well, it's my testimony. I go, yeah, but you don't match God. Our testimony must match God. And this is the same thing. If you go to a church and a pastor says something, and it is against the Scripture, I don't care how much that man of God thinks he's hearing from God, he's hearing from the wrong God. If it does not match to scripture, then that person's not hearing from God. He's hearing from his own created mind or he's hearing directly from the demons of hell, but he's not hearing from God. And we need to be sure, when I think I'm supposed to do something, does it match up to scripture? I've had this conversation with many people saying, well, I think I'm going to divorce my spouse. All right, what grounds you? Well, we just don't like each other anymore. All right, show me in the Bible where that says, well, no, I know God told me this. Uh, show me in the Bible where he told you you could divorce your, wife, your, your spouse for any reason. Well, I, it, it'll make me happy. God wants me to be happy. Okay, show me that verse in the Bible. Show me the verse in the Bible that God says you're going to be happy and that's your whole purpose of life. I can show you where God says he hates divorce. I can show you where God gives you the, the, the only reasons, reasonable reason for divorce. You know, and you know, we need to be able to look at this. Young people, when they're getting ready to get married and they want to get married to somebody, I'm going, are they a Christian? Well, I think so. Well, you might want to get that part taken care of first before you even think about. Well, no, but I can, I can get them saved. Don't be unequally yoked. No, no evangelism marriages. No evangelism dating. <laughs> It's not a wise move. You know, but we go in, what does the Bible say? How does the Bible deal with this? And we need to bring everything back to the word of God. Not twisting and bending the scriptures to, to meet what I say or want it to say, but what does it say? Can I see a clear scripture to give me a principle to stand on? Now, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't talk about every single activity that we're ever going to do. Once you, if you're planning to get married, it's not going to give you the name, your name and that person's name together in the book. All right? Just not going to happen. But it'll give you principles. Are they saved? Are, they, are you going to be unequally yoked? It is possible for both people to be saved and be unequally yoked. We need to be careful on that kind of thing. Uh, if both people are saved, but one is a Baptist and one is a hyper-Pentecostal, hyper you're going to have some problems in your, in your where, where do you go to church? The Pentecostal's not going to want to go to the Baptist church very often, and the Baptist person's probably not want to go to the Pentecostal church, so that needs to be worked out before they come together. Now, that's not as bad unequally yoked as if one's saved and one's not saved, but it's still a tough decision. You know, one's a Presbyterian and one's a Pe Pentecostal. They're, you're going to have some really hard times with those, that combination at times. It's not wrong, it's not scripturally wrong, but you've got to still look, are they equally yoked? One of them has been a Christian for decades and the other's a brand new believer. Might be some problems there. Might be. We need to look at those kind of things. I'm not going to say, no, you can't because you're, you know, you're both Christians. I love what Ken Ham does when he's talking about race. God sees only, only two races in this world, saved and not saved. He doesn't see all the colors and everything else that are out there. Now, there are problems when you cross nationalities. There are problems when you cross into certain areas. But those are s separate issues altogether. And they're not a problem. They're not, they're not bound as long as people go in knowing what's going on. But God says, 
I see saved people and I see lost people. And the lost can become saved. The saved are never going to become lost again, but you know, when you're saved, you pick, you might act like you're lost, <laughs> but you're not going to become lost. And this is what Peter's saying. We heard this voice. We are eyewitnesses. Verse 19 says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well if you take heed, as unto the light that shines in dark places until the day dawn and the day star arises in your hearts. We have a more sure prophecy. Why is it more sure? He's experienced it. All right? He saw it. He's going back to all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. I've heard people say that the Bible is almost is up to a third of prophecy. I don't know if that's a true statement. I've never counted the prophecies and compared it to the to total number of the Bible, but I know there's a lot of prophecy in the Bible. Whether it's a third or half or, or one-sixth or whatnot, I'm not going to get into because I'd have to go count every prophecy. And the problem with that is every time I read the scriptures, I see more prophecies. You know, and I see prophecies I never realized were prophecies until I read them at, at various times. So I'm going to believe that it might be two-thirds to half of the Bible is prophecy. God is the only one that can give very specific prophecies and have them come true. How can he do that? Because for him, they're not prophecies. He already knows they're going to happen because he is outside of time. He sees the beginning from the end, so he's not even telling us a prophecy. He's just saying, uh, by the way, this will happen. And from his mind, it already has happened because he's already there. But he says, sure, prophecy prophecy. Don't you get excited when you see what God says come true? When I see a person come to Christ and I see them become a brand new creation in Christ, the weight of sin lifted off their, off their back, the light shine on it, shining in their eyes, the, the smile on their face when they get Christ in their heart and the change in their life that's instant. And I've shared with you, I believe that when you get saved, at least one thing must change in your life because we're a new creation. You know, there's something in our life that needs to have changed that we can point and say, I was a desperate, gloomy person, and all of a sudden I had joy in my heart. I was an angry, bitter person, and the anger disappeared. I was a raging drunk, and my desire for alcohol disappeared. Whatever it might be, I really truly believe at least one thing is going to change in your life when you get saved. Some people have whole th their entire life turned upside down. I've seen that at times. I've sometimes wondered why God does that for them and not for us, you know, for all people. I mean, I, I know my temper was taken away, which took a lot of my problems away because I didn't have all the other problems that temper brought with it. But so there was a great blessing all the way around. But I've watched some people that just instantly seem to change. But over the years, I've learned one other thing about those type of people that have that dramatic change in their life. They are usually intolerant of those of us who have to struggle to watch God change us. Because their attitude is, God changed me overnight. Why, 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 why aren't you being changed overnight? You must not know the same God. And I've heard that kind of talking from them before. Really look at our lives and say, God, what, what have you done? What is my testimony? And because he fulfills this truth for us, we can go, God, I know that you are true. And a light starts shining in our hearts. I love the fact that I can read God's word and it illuminates my life. I get into his word and it is so funny to have studied God's word for all these decades and still find things that are new in it. You know, uh, I am thoroughly convinced, and I, and I read, I can't remember which pastor did it, but he, read, he, he preached on the same passage for an entire year. I'm sure his church probably got tired of it, but he gave new messages every day, every, every week for that year. 52 messages on the same passage. I don't know that I would try that, but I could understand how it could happen. God, what, 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 what's new in this verse today? What's new in this verse for this week? Uh, I've been accused of preaching on the same topic for a long period of time. I got on an evangelism kick for a while, and it was, you know, um, two or three months ago. Isn't there anything other than evangelism? I go, well, 
I plan on preaching something else, but God always changes it to evangelism. Maybe if we all go out and evangelize, God will move me on. You know, and that was his attitude when he preached that same verse. He goes, and people finally go, is there any other verse in the Bible? He goes, you're not living this one yet. We're not living this one. Are you listening? He was a little more bold than me. <laughs> you know, but you know, this is true. One of the things I've said as I've gone through, as we go through the book, I am shocked at how much God repeats himself. He knows how thick-headed we are and how pig-headed we are and how we won't listen. And he knows how his people didn't listen. And he repeats himself an awful lot. And it really just goes to show God's great patience with us. Because we would go, you know, and we probably all have done it with our kids. How many times have I told you <laughs> to pick up your room, mow the grass, uh, wash the car, whatever it is we're trying to tell them. How many times did I tell you? Never once in the Bible have I read God say, how many times have I told you? Now there are times when he said, okay, you haven't done it, now it's time for punishment. But he knows that we don't listen very well. <laughs> he knows that we aren't very obedient and keeps repeating himself. And the word of God illuminates our life. Now, as we walk with him, as we get changed, his illumination gets brighter and we get to see a little deeper into our very corrupt and unrighteous heart. And when we get a little bit of proud of all the things we've moved out of our life, God will shine the light just a little deeper and say, uh, well, I know you think you love people. Let me, let me show you how much you don't love people still. And how does he do that usually? He'll put somebody that's a little harder to love into our mix. All right, God, uh, I thought I knew how to love people. What would you put this person? Or, you know, God, how did this person come around? God, you, I, I'm a very patient person. God, I know, how to, I know how to get through. And God says, okay, let me see how patient you are when you have four or five things go wrong in the, within, within an hour. <laughs> you know, God will test us always and shine just a little brighter light to show us that we haven't arrived. I'm looking forward to the day that I die and God gives me a glorified body that has arrived. I will be completely patient. I will be completely loving. I will be completely love, merciful and grace-oriented. Grace I won't lose my temper at all. I won't be irritated because people will do stupid things because they won't be doing stupid things. You know, but isn't it great that God loves us? And he's got a light. And that light shines in the dark places of our heart. And then he says, until the dawn of day, until the day star arises in your heart. The day star, when they're referencing this, is Jesus. All right? Revelation 2.28 and Revelation 22.16 and Numbers 24.17 talk about the day star rising. And Revelation is very clearly, because it says it's Jesus. <laughs> it's not even, and not even an ambivalence in there. It tells us he is Jesus. Daystar is also referencing Venus in the sky, which rises in the morning, comes up in the morning. When we get through with our night here on earth, we will enter into the dawn of glory where Jesus rises, and he is the light of the world. Now, we think about this. In heaven... There is no sun, moon, or stars. There's light. Light that comes from everywhere and has no shadows. Because God is light. When creation first started, the sun, moon, and stars didn't come around till day four. But day one says there was light. Let there be light. Who was the light? God. He shone a light on this world and created a day and night. He is the light. In heaven, he will be the light again. And we can't even imagine that. We, you know, we know that we have light, we have shadows all over the place because we have light. In heaven, God is the light coming from all, all directions, all, all places, everything will be evenly illuminated, no night, no dark, no shadows, just light. What an amazing thought that will be. You know, okay, God, when, what, what's happening now? What day are we in? <laughs> You're not in a day. There was no night. You're, you're in eternity. No night or day. 
What a difference. You know, we can't even comprehend what things like that will be like. Jesus, the day star, rising in our life, illuminating our hearts, sometimes showing us things that we wish we hadn't seen in our heart. And God is really good about making us see how imperfect we are. God, I, I think I've got it down. I, I know how to be grace, give grace, God. Then he'll put somebody there to test the limits of our grace. Test that limit. All right, haven't we done this 578,000 times? You know, you're running, I'm getting to run out of grace with you. And God says, okay, you failed. <laughs> you know, the wonderful news is God, even in our failure, loves us. Never buy in to Satan's accusation that you have been too bad to be blessed, too bad to be forgiven by God. Never, ever fall, fall, fall for that. And it is easy. Satan, Satan attacks hard sometimes. Well, you, you know, you've just done too many sins. You know, what kind of Christian are you? you know, a good Christian would never have said something like that or never have done something like that or never have thought that or would not have skipped church just because you had a little sniffle, would never have church, missed church because, you know, whatever it might be. What kind of Christian are you? But before he does that accusation, he's usually saying, well, it doesn't matter if you do that. God will forgive you. He plants those seeds in our mind to commit the sin. And then once we commit the sin, oh, you're a terrible, awful person. He'll never forgive that one. Because he's just like every other liar, two-faced and, and says opposite things in the same breath. We need to be careful. We don't want to buy into cheap grace. And God will forgive us if we purposely sin. He will, but... You know, there'll be consequences, and I say that all the time. There's always consequences for sin. And those consequences are related to, did I do it willingly, on purpose? Did I do it just because I have a sin nature? And I just kind of found myself there. Now, if I found myself there, it's because I haven't been with, in God's word and following him anyway. But you all know what I'm saying. There's times when we just say, I'm going to sin. I want to do this. I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. And then there's times when we just kind of weren't following God real close and we kind of go, how did I get here? That one will have consequences, maybe severe consequences, but not quite as severe as the one where I say, I am going to sin. On that one, God is saying, okay, you made a choice. You know you made a choice. We're going to give you some really good consequences. But sin always has consequences. And those ones where we purposely make that choice may very clearly hurt our testimony before somebody because we made the choice we didn't get talked into it we didn't just kind of walk down the wrong path and find ourselves there then God will say no you still have consequences and here we see the day star this is the wonderful news for us as Christians when we sin as a Christian God is going to convict us I can't get away with anything even if I just find myself there I start doing it and God is right there saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And as a Christian, we're supposed to listen. <laughs> He's also telling the world through their conscience, don't do this, don't do this, it's wrong. People know, at least initially, that what they're doing is a sin. They can sear their conscience. If you can remember the first time you took that drink, the first time you smoked, the first time you committed fornication, the first time you committed adultery, whatever the first time was, you know that you knew you were doing wrong. Now, if you kept doing it, that conviction would start to drift away as a, as a lost person. You seared your conscience. But God will come in when it's judgment time and saying, he'll take you back to that first time. Uh, you knew that it was wrong. You knew and you kept doing it. Now, us as Christians, God's voice is very hard to silence once you're his child. You can keep doing it long enough that you tend to forget, but every once in a while, the Holy Spirit will come in and say, uh, knock, knock, knock. Uh, you do remember that you're supposed to be one of mine. You know that what you're doing is wrong. How do we know that we're a Christian? Because of the conviction when we have sin. You know, beyond just whatever's changed in our life, but God convicts us severely. And I hear it a lot from, from Christians. I just can't get away from nothing. I used to do these things with no problem. Now I can't even think about doing them without conviction coming into my life. Praise God, you're one of his children. 
It's wonderful that you're one of his children. Then we look at this verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. This is interesting because when we look at this verse, he's saying there's no scripture that you can make say what you want it to say. All right? We talked about this on how to study the Bible. When we look at the Bible, the very first rule of how to study the Bible is look at the scripture in its context. What we define that by? Read at least 10 to 20 verses in front of it, 10 to 20 verses after it, and usually that will tell you what that verse means. And I've done this with many people to go, well, I have a question about this verse. And we'll read and I'm going, okay, let me see what it says. And I'll read what it says. I'm going, ah, well, it sounds pretty clear to me. And they go, ah, uh, yeah, you made your point. <laughs> Very few verses are not hard to understand in context. The second thing is take the verse for what it meant. You know, don't try to twist it. If, remember, the verse was written in the first century. If it's in the New Testament, it was written two to three thousand years ago, or, or four to five thousand years ago. If it's in the Old Testament, read it for what it means in their day first. Then you can apply it to your own life. But remember, we talked about that. Each verse has one meaning and many can have many applications. And we want to be careful about that. We, we don't take an application and say, this is what it means. And my favorite verse for, saying, for using on that is that your bodies are a temple of God. Now, many people will take that and make all kinds of wonderful things out of it and apply it. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't, you know, don't have gluttony, you know, exercise, and they'll use that verse. And I agree, that verse is a that's great application of that verse. But what does that verse mean? My body is a temple of God. God lives in me. I have to stop there when I'm pushing the meaning. Now, if God applies it in some other area of my life, praise God, he's applied it in an area of life, and that's how he's talked to me. But I can't force others to buy into that same in application. And we want to be careful that we don't look to uh, force an uh, application upon a verse. Be very careful on that. Know what it means. Once you start with what it means, the applications are fine. When we were talking through the book of Exodus and Leviticus about the temple and about the offerings, we would always start in those classes as this is what it says and this is what it means. And now here's the symbolism and the way it applies to our life. And we talked a lot about the symbolisms. But we always started with this is what it means. <laughs> and then we moved on. This is what Peter's saying. Don't start with the application. Don't start with all those things. Start with what does it say. And then if God gives you an application, it's for you and for your life, but don't put that application as gospel because that is the Holy Spirit in you working through the meaning of that verse. It is not the meaning of that verse. And this is what Peter is saying. It's none of it is private interpretation or pertaining to oneself. Right? Well, we're going to find all kinds of verses in the Bible that God kind of lifts up and says, pay attention to this verse. Now, all of a sudden, that verse has moved from just a written word to a living word to you. God has spoken it to your heart. And at that point, you have to pay a lot of attention to it because God now has convicted you of something. And this is why I say so often, you can have two people doing exactly the same activity one is sinning because God has given them a rhema, a living word, to not do it. And the other one is not sinning because God hasn't spoken to their heart. Now, I'm not talking about a thou shalt not verse. You know, you shall not steal. You shall not use the name of the Lord God in, you know, in vain. You shall not have a, you know, commit adultery. You shall have no other gods before. Those are you shall not. Those are absolutely, there's no way you can do those and sin. But how about some of the lesser, lesser things? How much truth is truth? Now, as you read the Bible, you're going to know when God says truth, it's anything that you don't say that you know is, is a lie. You know, so how do, we, how, do we, how do we deal with this? You know, how do we go through this? How do we know how much grace to give somebody? You know, that's a hard thing. At what point are we enabling somebody to sin by giving them grace and mercy? At what point do we go, now we're enabling that's a tough, tough decision. 
how much do you help a lazy person to support them? Because they won't go out and do their own work. Because they're just depending on others to, to help them. And, and they're able to work. I'm not talking about the person who cannot work. Okay, in our day and age, we have a lot of people who think they can't work. But there are lots of things that, I'm talking about somebody who literally can't work. You know, they have no legs, they cannot work. They cannot, maybe have no arms or legs. And amazingly, we see people who can still work in that condition because they believe that they, God has given them gifts. If they've got a brain, they can work. And, you know, God made provisions in the Old Testament for people who did not have work and did not have farms. They had to get up and do some work. He goes, you can go out and glean in the fields. You, you farmers, if something falls on the ground and when you're harvesting it, don't go back and pick it up. It's for the poor. That meant the poor had to get up, up off their butts, go to the field, and pick up the stuff off the, off the field. But God made a provision for them. In our day and age, we have too many people saying, I don't want to do anything, just give me. Just give me, give me, give me. And that's not a good place to be because that is a dangerous place to be. I just want to be lazy and let others take care of me, and that's not what God promised. Gossip is all about, even if something is true and you're speaking it, you're speaking in gossip because you're trying to hurt them. Yeah. You know, if you're going to say something behind somebody's back, make sure it's good. Say all the things you want behind their back and, you know, as long as it's good. If it's going to be harmful, say it in front of their face. And that is what I've told lots of people who want to tell me about somebody, something somebody's done. I'm going, okay, let's go talk with them. If they're here, I'll let you tell me anything you want to tell me as long as they're here to defend themselves. I've had zero people over the years, decades, take me up on that offer. Nobody's ever taken me up on that offer. Nobody wants to tell me what the person's done in front of them. Because that's not what we want to do, is it? We just want to gossip. We're not trying to improve their life. We're not trying to help them. We just want to talk bad things about them. So we want to be careful. We want to edify and build up. Last verse in this chapter. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. How many times have you started to say something and then wondered what came out of your mouth because it was good and came from God? I can't tell you how many times, especially on Sunday morning, even on, on the Bible studies, that I have stood up with something in mind to speak on and then got to the end of the message and say, where did that message come from? Because it is not what I had planned on speaking. It happens a lot. There's times when I've talked to somebody and I'm, I'm listening to what I'm saying. I'm going, where did all that come from? It wasn't me. But I realized it was a prophecy speaking for God. And usually it was just what that person needed to hear at the time that they were being spoken to. And it says, no prophecy came in old time by the will of man, by my own desires. If it's something, prophecy. And what is prophecy? We've talked about this many times. Prophecy is not predicting the future necessarily. Prophecy is speaking with the authority and power of God. Every Christian is, has the ability to speak with prophecy because it comes from the Holy Spirit. True prophecy. The prophecy that builds up, that edifies, that might even be correction. And if it comes from the Holy Spirit, it's going to be somewhat gentle in most cases unless the person won't listen to gentle. If you won't listen to gentle, God will give you hard. He always starts out with the soft word. And if you're stubborn, he'll hit you upside the head with the two by four. And if you don't listen to that, maybe he'll drop a ton of bricks on you. If that doesn't work, you're probably going to heaven. <laughs> but he starts out very gentle. You know, very gentle. You know, we think of somebody like Balaam. God tells Balaam, don't go to curse Israel because I have blessed them. And he asks a second time, don't go because I have blessed them. He asks a third time, don't go because I have blessed them. Then he begs God, and God says, okay, you can go, but you can only... Well, let's change that. He says, you can go if they ask you again to come. And then the next part of the verse is, he's joining them. Okay, okay God gave me permission. No, God gave you permission if they came to you, Balaam, not just for you to run out there and join them. And he ran out to meet them.
And then God met him. And that's when the donkey speaks to him. The donkey runs off the road and he beats the donkey. He runs off the, crushes his leg against the wall and he beats him. He gets to a place where he can't go any direction. The donkey just lays down. He starts beating him and then the donkey starts speaking to him. Uh, and then the angel shows up. You know, hey, Balaam, your donkey's smarter than you. If your donkey had kept riding, your head would have been taken off of you. And Balaam repents and says, shall I go back? He goes, no, now you're going to give the words that I give you to speak. You know, how many times do we do that in our own life? Ignore God? Do things our way? Well, you know what, God? Uh, you said maybe if this happened, I could do it, so I'm going to go do it. Uh, no, I said if something happened, that didn't happen, so you're not supposed to be here. If you got drug away and arrested, then you should do this, but don't go do it on your own. <laughs> if this happens, do this. How often do we go out and do what we want and try to claim that it's God who told us to do it? Terrible testimony, terrible thing, and we're going to face the consequences for those activities. And this is what happens. It says they were moved by God. Every Christian, if we will just learn to open our mouth to share the gospel, open our mouth to edify, we will find that God will take over our words more often than we think he will. There's been many times when I've been witnessing and I start listening to myself talking. I'm going, this is my voice. It's my body speaking, but these aren't my words. Many times when I'm preaching and teaching, that's happened. This is my body. These are my words. These are my, this is my voice, but it is not me speaking. Hopefully all of you have had times when you have built somebody up when you, maybe even you were thinking you're going to go rip them to shreds and they find out that you're saying good things, just like Balaam did. He's talking to Balak. He's really ready to give the curse and all he can do is bless. He opens his mouth and God fills, fills it. And Balak is getting upset and Balaam's getting frustrated too because Balaam probably was trying to figure out, all right, I was planning to curse them and here I am blessing them. Has that ever happened to you where you were ready to do something that wasn't necessarily right, and the next thing you knew, you were doing something right. You know, your words came out opposite of the way you thought they were going to come. I love when God moves in our life. Usually, he'll just intensify what you were planning to say. If you're going to try and stumble over an edification, God probably will take over and make it a good edification. You know, if you're trying to teach somebody something, God may just take over, and that lesson is going to be more than you ever thought it was. God moves us by the Holy Spirit and we start speaking. And your words are going to be your words. Your words are going to be like you. One of the things we see in the scriptures is God spoke through people and every single author has a different style. Their words are a different style. Their makeup is a different style. John and Peter were very simple businessmen. They have a down-to-earth, simple language. Not necessarily bad, it was just down-to-earth language. We read Paul. Paul is a highly educated man. We would say in our day he had a doctorate. Most of what he says shows that he had a doctorate. When he writes a sentence, it takes half a page. Now, the English teachers look at that and say, Paul didn't learn his, learn his lesson very well. You don't really run on sentence like that. And they're right. His sentences are very long, have lots of big words. <laughs> Lots of fancy words, but that was who he is. He was an educated man that was trying to make his point through the way that he knew how to make his point. These other men, simple businessmen. They just wrote from what God gave them. Very profound, no less profound than anything Paul wrote, but much more basic and simple because that was who they were. And all through the Old Testament, we find certain people that had very flowing, elegant styles. We have some that were just straightforward, straight down to earth. Hey, I'm just a farmer. I'm going give it, to give it to you the way it is. I'm a shepherd. I'm just going to tell you the way it is. Uh, somebody like uh, Jeremiah, a trained priest. A lot, flower, a lot more flowery, a lot more theological, a lot more, you know, subtle in what he says. He's, he's not as... He's not carrying the hammer and hitting you over the head like some of the other guys do. He softens the blow and makes it a little easier to swallow. 
but God uses each person's personality to bring out his word and his communication. And it's a wonderful thing. The great news about the word of God is that there are no contradictions, no nothing opposite. And if you've ever studied in any book, that's an amazing statement. I've seen authors who contradict themselves in their own book, in the same book that they were written. Never mind if they write two or three books on the same topic and contradict themselves between the books. Here we have 66 books, you know, 30 some authors, <laughs> over 400 years with no contradictions, uh, 4,000 years with no contradictions. In human terms, that's an impossibility. It could not happen. It had to be a divine book with God's fingerprint all over it. What a book that we have to believe in. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to recognize our testimony. Help us to know that we have confidence to stand before, with you and to speak with you. Lord, if there's anybody that listens to this and doesn't know you, we ask that they will today admit that they're a sinner and ask for your forgiveness and come to you and ask for your help and you can be their Lord and Savior. And they'll find a good Bible-believing church to fellowship in. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.